You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If there was any doubt that human health is connected to everyone on the planet, the coronavirus pandemic put it to rest. But while some nations got access to life-saving vaccines relatively quickly, other countries had none. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown that relying on a few companies to supply global public goods is limiting and dangerous. A bright demarcation appeared between the global north, where the mRNA vaccines are made, and the developing world, or the global south, which was last in line to receive them. Some are still largely without. But now, an innovative international collaboration, some even call it subversive, hopes to correct a long-standing inequity in vaccine access by helping countries to make their own. It is a challenging project, there's no question about it. But it is also one of the most inspiring and most motivating. The question is, will Big Pharma stand in the way? I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. In this special episode, how the lack of vaccines has shaped the experience of COVID in poor countries, and whether a promising international collaboration can end a dangerous dependency on the West for vaccines, and why making every region of the world self-sufficient will benefit us all in the next pandemic. Helping to produce this episode and joining us to share her reporting from Africa is global health reporter Amy Maxman, whose science reporting for the journal Nature has earned her many awards, including the Victor Cohn Prize for Excellence in Medical Science Reporting for her coverage of the pandemic. She's currently a visiting press fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Maxman's July 2022 Nature article entitled The Radical Plan for Vaccine Equity is the basis of our story, and we thank the Pulitzer Center for their support of this episode. Hi, Amy. Hi. Let's start with an overview of how you came to do this story for Nature. So from the start of the pandemic, I've been covering the inequalities it has exposed and asking why some segments of society are expected to endure COVID with less protection. And so, as vaccines began to be rolled out at the end of 2020, I started to investigate the growing divide between wealthy countries and the rest of the world. So the story I'm about to share today is about an initiative, a fairly subversive plan to make vaccine access more equitable. 
My travels began in Cape Town, South Africa. Want me to no. no, no. At a small biotechnology company called Afrigen. In April, I met its managing director. She's a lively, straight-talking woman named Petro Turblanche. <laughs> Have you had COVID? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, two, yeah, twice. Oh, wow. Researchers at Afrigen are at the center of a new project to produce mRNA vaccines in South Africa, while at the same time teaching scientists from other developing countries how to make them. If you remember, lower-income countries had almost no vaccines when you and I were getting our first and second shots. I do remember. Health workers here in the U.S. got them in December 2020, and you and I got ours a couple months later. The U.S. were already in their third or fourth month of vaccination, Mm -hmm. while the African continent were not able to access one dose. And as bad as the vaccine situation was in South Africa, which is a middle-income country, it was even worse in poorer countries. I am Gondwani Jambo. I'm an immunologist by profession, and I'm also a senior lecturer at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in the UK. I'm based here in Malawi at the Malawi-Liverpool Welcome Program. I met Dr. Jambo in the city of Blantyre in Malawi. Malawi is a small and a very low-income country in southern Africa. Dr. Jambo's lab is at Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital, the biggest hospital in the country. He described the tragic situation there during the big surges of COVID in January 2021, when they had no vaccines and almost no drugs or oxygen to treat patients. It reminded him of the HIV crisis in the early 2000s. That hospital had no space for COVID patients. They had now to put patients outside in tents. And, and all those tents were full of people. And every day, uh, as you would pass by, you see coffins. You see people uh, dying on a daily basis. And the number of deaths, uh, as they are being announced on the radio, was going higher and higher each day. And um, it felt like we have gone back to when HIV first hit uh, Malawi when there was a lot of AIDS, uh, when there were no antitherapy, where you could hear lots so many people you knew are dying. And this is the same with us here, that we would find that uh, almost everyone would know somebody who has died from COVID-19 at some point, or somebody who is infected with COVID-19. This comparison to HIV is relevant because, as he said, AIDS was killing people in Malawi because they had no access to antiretroviral drugs, which were only available at that time to people in rich countries. And similarly, very few COVID vaccines were available in Malawi last year. So vaccines were then introduced in Malawi around April 2021. And at that point, a lot of people wanted to get vaccinated. Could most people get vaccinated in April? No, they couldn't because the vaccines were not there. We had actually run out multiple times. People were getting vaccinated and the vaccines run out. People were getting vaccinated, the vaccines run out. And then came June, July, so obviously a lot of people were still not vaccinated and came the Delta wave. The hospitals were getting filled, people were dying. We could see um, cases increasing by the day. So, Amy, what we're hearing is that a sharp inequity emerged once the COVID vaccines were developed in this second year of the pandemic. Right. You know, by the time I got my third dose at the end of 2021, less than 6% of people in low-income countries had received even a single shot of any COVID vaccine. The president of South Africa, Cyril Ramphosa, expressed his outrage at a press conference. It is just not equitable and not fair that some people in certain countries, and because they come from rich countries, their lives are worth much more than the lives of those in poorer countries. Amy, companies like Pfizer and Moderna made this incredible breakthrough of producing a life-saving coronavirus vaccine. Everyone who wanted it should have gotten it. Why haven't they? 
Yeah, I mean, in a fair world, priority populations around the world, like health workers, would get the vaccines first, and then everyone else in the general population. But in reality, the companies that make our most effective vaccines sold the vast majority of their doses to rich countries. That happened for a few different reasons. Some of the main ones is that rich countries offered the highest prices and they got their orders in early. And, you know, wealthy countries like ours promised donations to poorer ones, but donations were put on the back burner. By the end of 2021, for example, the U.S. only donated about a quarter of what they had promised to donate. This was just a really painful epiphany for billions of people waiting for doses. It was, it was just an acute realization how vulnerable we are. And at that time also, the news lines out from WHO was, we need to really look at vaccinating the whole world. No one is safe unless all of us are safe. And it was a real, real uncomfortable realization for the African continent. But what's amazing, Molly, is what happened next. What happened next? Tell us. <laughs> so, the governments of dozens of low- and middle-income countries realized that especially in times of a global emergency, when there's going to be hoarding, they need to be able to make their own vaccines. What's important to understand here is that location matters. One of the reasons that COVID vaccines were not distributed evenly in 2021 is because multiple countries essentially blocked the export of vaccines made by domestic companies until they had enough doses for their own populations. The U.S., the U.K., India all did this. They were protecting national interests first. These sorts of policies are really beneficial to people in countries where companies are based. But this is really frightening for countries that don't make vaccines. Almost none of the 54 countries in Africa make vaccines, and Latin America also doesn't have near enough capacity. So the World Health Organization, drawing on the fears and frustration of all of these different countries, hatched a pretty radical plan to make regions of the global south self-sufficient for COVID vaccines and other types of vaccines needed in the future. Today, I'm delighted to announce that WHO is in discussions with a consortium of companies and institutions to establish a technology transfer hub in South Africa. In the summer of 2021, the head of the WHO, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who goes by Dr. Tedros, announced this international collaboration. mRNA technology has been in development for decades and is the basis for at least two safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines. It's potentially easier to scale than other vaccine technologies and could be faster and easier to adapt to variants of concern. He said mRNA vaccine technology transfer hub, which is kind of a mouthful. It is. It's a really clunky name, but it's all there in the title. Basically, it's a network to share the knowledge on how to make mRNA vaccines with scientists in the global south who just want to make them for their own regions. At the core of this technology transfer hub is Afrogen in South Africa, and it's working with more than a dozen groups in the global south, including in Argentina, Brazil, Indonesia, some of the companies in these countries, these are the so-called spokes of the hub, already make other types of vaccines and will now start working on mRNA vaccines. Other companies in the network make drugs, but now they're building completely new facilities for this work. And so will these countries develop their own COVID vaccines from scratch? Well, that wasn't the original plan. You know, at first, the WHO figured 
that the companies that make today's leading mRNA vaccines, that's Moderna, Pfizer, and BioNTech, would come to Afrogen and teach the scientists there how to make them and also give the hub licenses needed to reproduce their vaccines. Okay, so developing countries say, well, if you're not going to give us the vaccines, we'll need to make them ourselves. And so the WHO launches this hub to make the vaccines, hoping that Moderna and Pfizer will teach the hub how to do it. Exactly right. And then the idea is that Afrogen passes both the knowledge and the licenses to other developing countries. But there was a problem. The WHO kept asking Moderna and Pfizer for their cooperation, but they were met with silence. And it sort of became clear that the companies were not interested. They just weren't going to play ball. I remember we, yeah, I had the, the vaccine, the mRNA hub team together. And, and I, you know, I remember I said to them, guys, nobody is going to come here to train us to do this. Wow. You can hear her frustration. So what did Afrogen do? Well, here's kind of the incredible thing. To everyone's surprise, the WHO responded by deciding that the hub would try to reproduce Moderna's vaccine anyway. One of the main reasons why they picked Moderna's vaccine is that a lot of their original research on that shot was done at the NIH and at universities, and so it was published in the scientific literature. Now, earlier you introduced this story by saying that it was a subversive project. Is this a subversive part? Yeah, it's one of a few different subversive things, actually. I mean, here's the WHO attempting to circumvent Big Pharma. And the kind of cool thing is that as soon as word got out that the hub was going to attempt to copy Moderna's vaccine, offers of assistance just flooded in. It was amazing. I received emails. I remember actually in one day, I received emails from the Ukraine, from Serbia, from the U.S., from Australia, from the NIH, volunteering information, knowledge, experience to help the team in South Africa to succeed. It's really amazing. Why do you think so many people wanted to help with this? I mean, I think the whole world was disillusioned with what happened with vaccine distribution. And, you know, this was a united quest for survival. You know, I've got to admit on a personal level that this sort of enthusiasm is kind of heartwarming because when you're reporting on inequality, when you're reporting on poverty, you also look at the flip side of, you know, why those things exist. And it forces you to think a lot about greed and about selfishness, about, you know, personal interests. So that's why it was just really nice to hear that so many scientists around the world were working against that and just trying to share their scientific knowledge because they wanted to better humanity. We've been talking about mRNA vaccines. Now, this is a vaccine that uses a piece of engineered messenger RNA designed to trigger your immune system so that it will protect you from COVID. But, Amy, there are different kinds of COVID vaccines. So why are the scientists at the Hub interested in mRNA? For a few reasons. One of them is that mRNA vaccines can be made nimbly. Scientists can figure out the genetic sequence of a new variant or a totally new virus and then quickly design a vaccine based on that sequence. Another reason is that in some ways, mRNA vaccines are easier to manufacture than older vaccines. I'm Barney Graham. I'm former deputy director at the Vaccine Research Center at NIH and professor of medicine and microbiology, immunology, biochemistry at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. Dr. Graham is an immunologist and a virologist, and his research helped make mRNA vaccines from Moderna possible. He also happens to be one of the scientists who, early on, reached out to Dr. Turblanche to help the Hub make an mRNA vaccine based on Moderna's shot. Dr. Graham is working with the Hub 
because it's doing the very thing that drove him to work on mRNA vaccines in the first place. They could be made to fight many different viruses. They also could be made in many places. The great advantage on manufacturing for RNA is that it's chemical synthesis. In a test tube, you can synthesize the strand of RNA that you want chemically. You don't need large campuses of what we call bioreactors. Okay, so that's the advantage of making an mRNA vaccine, because it relies more on chemistry than biology. It doesn't require growing all these biological organisms. Right. And that's nice because biological organisms like yeast and bacteria or animal cells, which are used in making various other vaccines, are pretty finicky. Okay, so it is the elegant simplicity of it. It's easy. Yeah. I mean, let's be careful with the word easy. It's not like you can make mRNA vaccines in a garage. But what Dr. Graham is saying is that because there are just fewer laborious, finicky steps here compared to the production of more traditional types of vaccines, it means you could theoretically make them in more places in the world. The idea that this is chemical synthesis has changed the possibilities. It creates new options for how to do manufacturing, and it also creates options for relatively small-scale, small-footprint type of manufacturing that may be uh, more achievable in low- and middle-income countries. And remember, the goal of the hub is to ensure that every region of the world, including Africa, produces its own vaccines. You know, that's something that Dr. Jambo certainly wants to see. It's about time Africa needs to start standing on its own, needs to have its own vaccine manufacturing capacity, needs to have its own factories for pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. I think it's, it's, it's very important. Dr. Graham thinks mRNA could be the key to unlock this vision. This is a technology that can be a game changer. It's like application of cell phone technology instead of going through the generations of laying cable and fiber in the ground. And you see uh, over the 20 years between 2000 and 2020 what a huge difference that made in Africa for telecommunications. I think a similar thing for this chemical synthesis, small footprint, small batch manufacturing approach for mRNA can really make a difference in both research and manufacturing in Africa. So imagine we have a vaccine that's relatively easy to make and scale up. It already exists, so if developing countries could make it themselves, it could transform how we deal with this pandemic. Right, and they did it. They did it? You mean they made the vaccine? Yeah, kind of shockingly, Averagen surprised me and the world by announcing that in just a few months, they actually reproduced Moderna's mRNA vaccine. When I talked to them in January 2022, they had just a small vial of the vaccine. And since then, they've been making more of it. They're testing it. They're testing it in animals. So it's all a really hopeful story. It's a triumph of scientific ingenuity. You'd think. Ooh, I feel that there's a catch coming. Yeah. You know, last year, the big challenge for the hub seemed to be scientific. Would the small company in South Africa be able to make an mRNA vaccine all on their own? And they did. But since then, researchers have run into more formidable roadblocks. It sounds like manufacturing vaccines is something that developing countries can do. If that's the case, what's the problem? 
Some of the biggest barriers to vaccine equity are the same that have kept the production of vaccines and other drugs in the grip of Big Pharma for decades. How intellectual property laws and market forces are making it difficult to fight global disease. This episode of Big Picture Science, produced with help from the Pulitzer Center, is Vaccine Inequity. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. In her coverage of vaccine inequity for the journal Nature, global health reporter Amy Maxman described an invisible divide that formed as COVID-19 vaccines spread among rich countries while the rest of the world waited. Well, as we heard, some of these countries got tired of waiting. The creation of the mRNA Vaccine Technology Transfer Hub, or the Hub, by the World Health Organization in 2021, united more than a dozen countries in the global south in the pursuit of vaccine independence, that is, their effort to manufacture mRNA vaccines locally. And when companies like Moderna refused to teach the hub what they knew, hub scientists did an end run around that and created an mRNA vaccine anyway. In January 2022, they made one small vial of vaccine based on Moderna's shot. But another roadblock was waiting for them. We now continue the story of the hub and consider what happened next. This episode, looking at the global vaccine divide and a proposed radical approach to bridging it, is supported in part by the Pulitzer Center. Dear Moderna shareholders, my name is Tedros, and I'm the Director General of the World Health Organization. I congratulate the scientists, both public and private, who created the COVID-19 vaccines. Unfortunately, this scientific triumph has been marred by a failure of humanity to share In April of 2022, Dr. Tedros made an appeal directly to Moderna shareholders, asking them to cooperate with the hub. Despite our requests, Moderna has so far declined to share technology or know-how with the WHO hub. This delays our life-saving work. We urge Moderna to share technology and know-how with the WHO hub and commit to not enforcing patents for COVID-19 and other essential vaccines in countries hosting the WHO hub. Amy, it seems like making such an emotional public appeal for help from the company was a dramatic move. Why did Dr. Tedros do this, even after the hub had successfully copied their vaccine? Well, remember the hub didn't have Moderna's exact recipe. Instead, they created something close to it just based on what they read from the scientific literature, from online seminars, and from having conversations with scientists. And now they need to do a lot of studies to prove that their version of the vaccine is just as safe and effective as Moderna's COVID vaccine. So if Moderna would share the results of their own internal studies, the hub could use those studies for comparison, which would just be more efficient. 
Now, the second big thing that Dr. Tedros is asking for are licenses to make mRNA vaccines so that the hub's companies can make the shots without fear of getting sued. When the hub made the vaccine, what was it that they were doing that was illegal? No, what they're doing is legal as long as the work is in the research stage. But once the companies involved with the hub get their vaccine authorized and start selling it, then they risk being sued for patent infringement. So the new foe in this story threatening to derail the hub's project is the protection of intellectual property. And of course, that includes patents. So what exactly is being patented when we're talking about mRNA vaccines? Is it, you know, just the chemical formula or the manufacturing process? Or is there one patent that applies to the entire vaccine? Oh, no, there's dozens of patents. At least 80 patents cover different components of mRNA vaccines. Like, for example, there are patents on specific recipes for the mRNA in the vaccine, and there are patents on this sort of bubble that protects the mRNA from being degraded within cells. This bubble is made from a mix of fat molecules, or lipids, and even the different lipids are patented. Remember, this science has been in the making for 20 years, and all along the way, researchers have patented their work. I think that some people would ask, why are patents involved in this at all? The product is about public health, after all. It is, but a lot of people say patents are really important because they encourage companies to take the research forward into drug development. To develop a drug or vaccine, companies will need millions and millions of dollars from investors, and patents help ensure that they can get a return on that investment. What if the investment is actually made by the public, as was the case with Moderna, where the government provided around a billion dollars to help them develop the vaccine? Seth, this is a question I actually think about all the time. Like, when we, taxpayers, fund research, can our government do more to ensure that the fruits of that research, which, like the Moderna vaccine in this case, does the most good? Just hypothetically, what if, when the U.S. government gave Moderna a billion dollars, it stipulated that if Moderna's vaccine worked, the company would have to share the recipe with companies who would make it for developing countries? That's just a hypothetical, and it didn't happen. Well, so far, Moderna has not played ball. It's not given licenses to the hub to use their vaccine recipe. This is really a morass, this patent business. How are the companies in the hub avoiding it? Good question. They're trying a few things. One of the most important is that they're working with researchers around the world to try to make an mRNA vaccine that's sufficiently distinct from Moderna's so that the patents won't apply. So, for example, they might find a different way to make that snippet of mRNA used in the vaccine? Yeah, exactly. I saw researchers working on that at a university in South Africa that collaborates with Afrogen. Another thing they're trying to do is switch up some of those fat molecules I mentioned, the lipid nanoparticle, or LNP, the bubble that protects the mRNA. So, we can just walk through here and I'll show you on the inside. That's Emil Hendricks. He's a research technologist at Afrogen. When I was there, I put on a lab coat and he gave me a tour of their new upgraded facility that will eventually be making mRNA vaccines for people. This is the room now where the lipid nanoparticle part comes in. That's, That's sort of the thing everybody always talks about, so yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, the lipid nanoparticle is basically just a collection of various fat molecules that will form a protective barrier around your mRNA, which is extremely important because you have your pure mRNA, which is the active ingredient inside the vaccine. That is what you want your cells and the body to get. Uh, but unfortunately, because of the instability of mRNA, you can't just inject that straight into someone. You need to make sure that the mRNA will actually be stable and will actually get to where it needs to go. And that is the function of the LNP. 
And so here we've got this machine that's like a yes. couple of cubes and there's a neat sort of blue tinted window in front of it. What does this do? So this is the actual machine that we will use to make the LNP. So all these little wires that you see are basically just beautifully designed system that will make sure that the mRNA and your lipids mix in a particular way to make sure that we get those optimal conditions for LNP formulation. So it's a little bit of chemistry, a little bit of math, a little bit of biology that's happening all in here. But Amy, it sounds like they won't be able to use the same fat particle, or I guess I should say lipid nanoparticle, that Moderna uses. So they're being forced to reinvent the wheel which is kind of frustrating since we already have a wheel that works. It's funny, reinventing the wheel is exactly how one of the researchers described it to me. Last year, the hub was hopeful that they wouldn't have to go to such lengths to discover totally new ways to make mRNA vaccines. And that's because there was this proposal to suspend intellectual property on COVID vaccines around the world. The hub was hoping this proposal would really help them. Did you ever hear about it, Seth? It's called the TRIPS waiver. TRIPS waiver. Oh, can't say that I have. I asked because a lot of people, the heads of some UN agencies, the head of the WHO, some leading economists, they were all pushing for it because they didn't want to see patents get in the way of ramping up vaccine production at a time when we're in the middle of a pandemic and millions of people are dying. But first, we need to explain what the TRIPS agreement is. My name is Achal Prabhala. I work in Bangalore in India. I also work in South Africa and in Brazil. I've spent the last 20 years working on pharmaceutical monopolies. In 1995, the World Trade Organization passed a policy to more strongly protect intellectual property around the world. That policy was called the TRIPS Agreement, which stands for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. The TRIPS Agreement is something called a trade rule, which is actually very difficult, I think, for ordinary people to understand, and I took some time to wrap my head around it. It is definitely complex, but let's keep it simple. You know, basically, TRIP stipulates that all countries belonging to the World Trade Organization must abide by the same intellectual property rules, like respecting patent rights for 20 years. Mr. Prabala says he studies pharmaceutical monopolies. Amy, what's meant by a pharmaceutical monopoly? I mean, does having a patent mean you have a monopoly? Sort of, depending on whom you talk to. But when we think about monopolies, we're usually talking about companies that enforce really strict patent protection so that no one else can make the product, which allows one company to control the supply and set the price. And what the monopoly means, in effect, is that no one else can use that thing, whether it's a a pharmaceutical invention or an engineering invention, except with the permission of the company that owns the monopoly. And so it should come as no surprise that the biggest driver of the TRIPS agreement way back in the 1990s were U.S. pharmaceutical companies. But this is all really wonky. Most people would never have heard about the TRIPS agreement, except that it started to make headlines in the early 2000s as the HIV epidemic exploded in southern and eastern Africa, and people there couldn't get treatment because only a few companies made HIV drugs and they set extremely high prices. And... Because of the TRIPS agreement, those monopolies were protected even though people were dying. Antiretroviral therapy was this magical invention created in 1996 in the United States. And and it was groundbreaking. It turned what was almost certainly a death sentence into a chronic condition like diabetes. I mean, no more scary than diabetes, right? 
it really was a, a magical, remarkable invention. It's just that it couldn't reach anyone else anywhere in the world, especially where it was needed most. There was absolutely no access to this drug, and so it remained a death sentence, not just in countries like South Africa, but in sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of Latin America, uh, right up to the mid-aughts. In South Africa, for instance, the very first time that people in the country had reasonable access to these medicines was 2004. And that was eight years after these drugs were invented. This period is really seared into the minds of anyone who lived in southern or eastern Africa in the early 2000s. And so, when they and other people in the global south started hearing about the development of COVID vaccines, they worried that once again, they were going to be left in the back of the line. But Mr. Prabala hoped it would be different this time. The pandemic was just such an extraordinary unifying phenomenon where the entire world was experiencing this thing at the same time. We felt surely people could see that the monopolies that have plagued recovery or being staying alive through these diseases earlier would understand that this is no place for them, right? So at the end of 2020, South Africa and India put forward a proposal to the World Trade Organization, the WTO, to waive the TRIPS agreement for COVID vaccines, drugs, and diagnostic tests so that companies in the global south would be able to make them and save the lives of their own people. At first, a lot of people were pretty confident that this would happen. It's really hard for me to find the words to describe this adequately. There was nothing in the world that made more sense. It was the most obvious thing that needed to be done. And at WTO, still no trips waiver. The fake waiver on the table. Fulfilling Big Pharma's dreams. Is not what the world needs. So this protest was staged by about 50 civil society groups outside of a World Trade Organization meeting in Geneva earlier in 2022. Initially, there was actually a lot of support for this proposal. More than a dozen countries, including the U.S., supported it. But a number of European countries remained opposed. So then it just sort of languished. Yeah, but I'm just curious. Why would anyone be opposed to this, especially during a pandemic? I've tried to get straight answers, and it's not easy. But what my reporting suggests is that the reason why mRNA vaccine patents are so contentious is that this vaccine platform is likely to be really lucrative in the future because it's a promising technology that could be used to prevent all sorts of diseases. So from the perspective of big Western pharmaceutical companies, it makes sense not to want to risk competition in this space from companies based in, say, China. Anyways, as these negotiations at the WTO dragged on for a year and a half, millions of people died of COVID in countries that didn't have vaccines. But the companies were doing well. Multiple Moderna executives and investors became billionaires, for example. Well. What you seem to have here is a familiar clash between the public need and the interests of a private corporation. Did you ask Moderna about this? Yep, I did. A spokesperson for Moderna replied to one of my emails, saying that the company's goal throughout the pandemic has been to protect as many people as possible around the world. And he also added that a quarter of their doses went to low- and middle-income countries in 2021. But let me answer your question more directly by looking at interviews with Moderna's CEO, as well as with pharmaceutical trade organizations. Now, what they argue is that strong patent protection is needed to drive innovation. However, Achal Prabhala reminds us of a central flaw with this argument. A whole lot of Moderna's research was publicly funded. 
when Moderna says we did the work to make this vaccine and we put in all this money, uh, actually, I'd like to remind them that the money actually came from U.S. taxpayers uh, to the tune of billions of dollars. Moderna did not put in very much of its own money and didn't risk anything because it wasn't much of a company uh, before it invented a successful COVID vaccine. So really, Moderna has no leg to stand on whatsoever when it says it needs to recoup investment that was actually granted to it free of cost and free of any strings in the first place by you, by Americans. Well, Amy, I mean, this is this is really a puzzle because, you know, you've got these competing interests. And meanwhile, off to the side, as it were, you've got millions of people who are threatened and are dying. And so, you know, to reconcile the various interests here, I mean, it's nobody evil. But on the other hand, what are you going to do? I mean, it's really upsetting. But rather than just thinking of Moderna as evil, I don't really like using those kinds of words. Moderna's not alone here. A lot of drugs and vaccines are developed with public money, and we do that because it's considered an investment in health. So really, the question we should be thinking about is how can we design or redesign the system so that publicly funded drugs and vaccines can do the most good for people and not just the shareholders of these companies? Well, I have to say that that sounds appealing to me. I mean, surely there's a way to reconcile these various interests with the the real goal here, the primary goal at least, should be the public health aspect. The success of the corporation is something else. The value for the taxpayers is something else. But you're talking about health. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the equation changes when we're talking about health. When we're talking about patents on a designer handbag or even on software that we need, yes, you know, there's all sorts of arguments over how much should the inventor get and how much should be shared. But we're talking about things that save lives, you know, things that, you know, our loved ones wouldn't be alive without. What happened with the proposal to waive the TRIPS agreement? A compromise was reached in June, about 20 months later. But Seth, everyone I talked to is disappointed because it's so restrictive. Well, Amy, in an alternate universe, if the TRIPS waiver had swiftly passed, as was proposed, and the IP was suspended, would we now have vaccine factories popping up across the developing world? So it would have definitely helped, but I want to be clear that there are other issues. One of the big ones is that regionally made vaccines are likely to cost more because of economies of scale. They'll just be producing less at first. Also, big pharmaceutical companies could undercut newer competitors by temporarily dropping their prices. They can afford to do that. So something that's vital to the hub is that governments and philanthropists commit to buying vaccines from regional companies in Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America, even if they cost more. And I'm not just talking about COVID vaccines here. These companies with the hub plan on being sustainable by making mRNA vaccines for other diseases that affect their regions, you know, like measles or Rift Valley fever. It seems to me sort of unlikely that governments are going to pay more for vaccines, though, when they could get them for less money elsewhere. You're right. It's a tall order to ask to revise the IP system and also get a bunch of investment into this. But this is really serious. If we want a safer world where every region can protect itself, there's going to be an upfront cost. And the case to be made is that the stakes here are really high. Big Pharma has put up a lot of roadblocks in the hub's attempt to create vaccine independence for poor countries, the patent fight being the most daunting. 
but the hub's success doesn't benefit the Global South only. I'm interested in pandemic preparedness, not just for coronavirus, but for all other future threats. COVID isn't over, and this won't be our last pandemic. Is the world prepared? This episode of Big Picture Science, produced with help from the Pulitzer Center, is called Vaccine Inequity. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where we are in the story of an international collaboration to end dependency on the West for vaccines. Moved by the injustice of having to wait for COVID vaccines while people in wealthy countries got their first, second, and third doses, about a dozen developing countries joined an initiative to produce vaccines locally so they don't need to wait on the benevolence of the global north. The initiative is called the mRNA Vaccine Technology Transfer Hub. Now, global health reporter Amy Maxman tells us the rest of the story, why their goal benefits us all. Well, I have to ask, though, hasn't the hub missed its chance? Amy, haven't we passed the peak of the pandemic? Well, for one, we don't know that. There's a likelihood we're going to keep needing boosters, especially as new variants arise. Or we could get a brand new COVID vaccine that's more effective than the ones today. But anyways, the hub isn't only concerned with COVID. It also hopes to make vaccines against other diseases, too. But even starting with COVID seems difficult. As we heard, the hub is facing challenges around intellectual property, and they'll need a sufficiently large market to justify their investment. Sounds like a tall order to me. It is. It's a lot to ask for. It's especially hard to ask for this kind of investment at a time when the world is preoccupied with so many crises. It's really tough to keep vaccine manufacturing on the agenda, but we need to because it's a key part of pandemic preparedness. And honestly, when I talk with anyone from low and middle income countries, they're just so passionate about this idea of making vaccines regionally. And I mean everyone, including farmers I spoke with in Malawi. Tell me your name and that, you know, what your role is in this village. Harrison Chaluka is the headman or chief of the Makunda village in Malawi. I spoke with him outside of his home on a patch of swept dirt beside cornfields with the help of a translator named Prophet Dwauda. When I told Mr. Chaluka about the goal of the hub to have vaccines made in South Africa, which is a neighbor of Malawi, he loved the idea. I think it's, it's a helpful and a welcome idea because the fact that we have to rely on the West to give us the vaccines, by the time the vaccines reach Africa, the pandemic, the disease are already out of hand. Mm. So if we can produce our own vaccines, We'll have them uh, on standby so that by the time we experience an outbreak, help will be right available. So he's already thinking about the next outbreak. 
Yeah, and he's right to. You know, pathogens spill over from nature fairly frequently. It's where a lot of diseases come from. This includes HIV, Ebola, monkeypox, influenzas, Lyme disease, loss of fever, and so on. So the hub's vision is to be able to have vaccine plants that are capable of making vaccines against whatever diseases are a local problem. And many vaccinologists, like Barney Graham, are hopeful that mRNA vaccines, in theory, are the tools that could help regions extinguish local outbreaks before they get big. Well, I'm interested in pandemic preparedness in general, not just for coronavirus, but for all other future threats. The first case of Lassa fever in 15 years has been diagnosed in South Africa. The patient fell ill on his return to KwaZulu-Natal after traveling to Nigeria. For instance, if an investigator in Nigeria wants to make Lassa virus vaccine, they could use RNA technology. And I think that that, in the long run, is uh, more likely to get us ready for future pandemics because many of these viruses from the 26 viral families that infect humans are not necessarily going to be of great interest in high-income countries until they become pandemic threats. This idea of using mRNA as a vaccine platform for lots of viruses is not pie in the sky. Scientists are already trying to make mRNA vaccines against monkeypox, malaria, and the flu. There's just a lot of hope in the potential of this technology. And Dr. Graham isn't just talking about the viruses we know, but also those we don't know. I'm talking about novel viruses that could spill over from nature at any time. It's an easy-to-understand idea that in areas of the highest and greatest biodiversity, you might have the greatest chance for new viruses or unrecognized viruses to emerge. And that's usually in tropical areas, and those are often in low- and middle-income countries. So, say a scary new virus emerges in Peru or Nigeria, the hope is that researchers in those regions of the world could sequence its genome and then race to develop and roll out vaccines quickly. So, whether it's a known or it's a novel virus, having rapid local deployment of mRNA vaccines would help us stop the next pandemic before it even starts. And that's why Dr. Graham argues that the hub is in all of our best interests. If we could immunize the world in six months instead of six years, we could not only save a lot of lives and prevent a lot of uh, suffering, but we would also prevent a lot of the chances the virus has to create variants. So it's really in everyone's best interest to solve this problem Well, it's certainly exciting that mRNA vaccines might be useful for all sorts of other diseases, but those patents that we were talking about earlier, Amy, do they only apply to COVID vaccines? It's hard to say, but this might be a big issue in the future because some of the vaccine intellectual property covers fundamental aspects of mRNA vaccines. And so the worry is that IP could prevent alternative companies from producing mRNA vaccines against other diseases. And let's just say Moderna does come up with a new mRNA vaccine against monkeypox. Well, great. But will African countries have fast access to it? There's good reason to think that they won't. And they're pretty tired of that. You know, I also recall hearing that it's not just a question of vaccine supply. I mean, this year, some African countries actually asked for a pause on vaccine shipments because they weren't using what they had before they expired. Yeah, that's true. Distribution is a big hurdle. You know, we need reliable supplies of vaccines, but we also need stronger health systems. 
You know, when I was in Malawi, I spent one morning at this clinic in a rural town called Chiradzulu. I was talking with patients who were waiting to be seen for just various problems like infected wounds and treatment for chronic diseases. I was struck by how far they had traveled, even for basic care. One woman, Agnes Joni, told me her journey. Again, Prophet Duauda is translating. It's a long distance. She has to start early in the morning when it's still dark, and she has to take a torch to see the way. Wow. Yeah. What time this morning did you start? She started off at 3 a.m. And when did you arrive? 7 o'clock a.m. 7 a.m.? Yeah. Wow. Four hours? Yeah, and she's going to walk all the way back home and spend the rest of her day farming. So we can add broken health care systems to the list of challenges for vaccine access. Yeah, I've talked about all of these challenges with a lot of people who are trying to produce these vaccines locally in Africa and in other parts of the global south. Like, when I was in South Africa, I visited a pharmaceutical company that's one of the spokes in the hub initiative. It's called BioVac. BioVac's a bigger company than Afrogen, and its researchers plan on scaling up Afrogen's vaccine once it's been tested for safety. So when I asked BioVac's head of science, a man named Patrick Tipu, about all of the challenges facing the hub, he actually got a little bit exasperated. So the question is, do we have an option not to do this? And I would uh, strongly suggest that the answer to that is absolutely not. And I am firmly believing that with our multiplicity of efforts, we will not fail. It might take longer, it might be complicated, but we will achieve what we set out to do. I can understand why a pharmaceutical company in South Africa would push for this, and why its government would too, but don't we also need global cooperation? I mean, is that support there? A little. There are a lot of donations, but this is a long-term project. And frankly, I worry that our country loses sight of the idea that global health security is in our national best interest. Dr. Jombo, the immunologist in Malawi, reminded me of something the WHO keeps repeating. We're all in this together. That's why I think the WHO director always says, no one is safe until all are safe. To me, that catchphrase is very important for global health, and that's the way we should design systems to capture that. And that needs to happen soon, because otherwise, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is not the last pandemic. There are more pandemics that will come. I think now is a critical point for us to realign our priorities as, as human beings. Well, Annie, to wind this up then, what's the status of the hub now? The hub is making progress. It's announced more than a dozen contracts with biotech companies in the global south, including in Argentina, Brazil, Indonesia, Senegal, South Africa, and India. And just recently, there was an announcement that was really good news for the hub. An organization funded by governments and philanthropists that buys vaccines for developing countries, called the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, announced that they will work on a plan to buy vaccines made in Africa even if they cost more, at least for a little while. Well, that's good news. You know, Amy, some of the most intriguing aspects of the mRNA hub project are those that you've identified as subversive, such as going ahead and attempting to make the vaccine when companies like Moderna refuse to help. Are they doing anything else that's subversive? You know, actually, the hub's vision is pretty radical in and of itself. 
The idea here is to correct a long-standing imbalance in power that favors the global north and that keeps the global south in a dependent position. Dr. Treblanche is passionate about this subject. I do believe that the world needs to restore balance. It's just too bipolar. You know, it, it, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. I believe that a project like this is not only about bringing healthcare products to those countries that needs it, but to build the economies of those countries. And another radical aspect is the hub's open science model, where researchers from a lot of different companies are working together and sharing their knowledge. That's opposite to the way that a lot of R&D works now, where companies really closely guard their trade secrets. Emil Hendricks, the young research technologist at Afrigen, is really encouraged by this. It's not just a trainee training type of model, it's more of a collaboration. So even though some of the spokes may have already have experience in some of the aspects of this mRNA technology, we have some knowledge that they don't have, they have some that we don't have, so we kind of interchange information. But that's just the beauty of this program because that way we are learning as well as they are learning and it just creates this beautiful collaborative network that hopefully will take us long into the future. I find this hopeful because the problem at least has been recognized, not just as a market imbalance, but also it's about human lives after all. People have proposed solutions and are actually working on them and of course that's the first step. It really is. I said in the beginning that I think a lot about issues of inequity and distribution. And I think these subjects really matter to science and to science journalism. Because if the whole point of science is progress, we need to really make sure that the inventions of science are widely available. We can make mRNA vaccines and gene therapy and energy-efficient vehicles, but none of this is going to really move humanity forward if only a small fraction of the world can get their hands on it. And the Hub is an effort trying to address this fundamental inequality. Well, Amy, thank you for your reporting and for joining us. Seth, it's such a pleasure to tell this story. Thank you. Thanks to Big Picture Science. Well, Seth, what is the big picture in this special episode of Big Picture Science? What are your thoughts? You know, Molly, science obviously is universal, but the distribution of science in terms of products is not so universal. I mean, you know, the photos of the James Webb telescope, everybody has access to that data, but not in the case of these vaccines because, you know, the research has led to products and products to income. And so, you know, the metric here is often not global health. It's a company's profit. So a lot is on the line, the health of everyone. And the fact that it's mRNA technology that is so adaptable and can be made anywhere in the world, that may present a new model for doing science. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with the idea of the model here, that you distribute the manufacture of these vaccines around the world. You know, I think it's tough. I really think it's, as uh, Amy said, a tall order. But at least it's an order. I mean, you know, there's, there's a proposed solution here, and we got to see how that works. Our 
Our thanks to award-winning global health journalist Amy Maxman for sharing with us her extensive reporting in Southern Africa. Dr. Maxman's July 2022 Nature article entitled The Radical Plan for Vaccine Equity is the basis for our story, and you can find a link to it on our website. We also thank the Pulitzer Center for their support of this episode. This show would not be possible without the hard work of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. Also, thank you to sound engineer in New York, Sam Platt. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include understanding the fundamentals of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was created by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, which looks at an effort to make every region of the world vaccine self-sufficient, is called Vaccine Inequality. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.